Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. The New Statesman. Hi, I'm Anoush, and on today's New Statesman podcast, we'll try and make sense of what's happening to the economy. I'm delighted to be joined by some special guests for this episode. David Gork, the former Conservative Cabinet Minister who served as Chief Secretary to the Treasury in 2016 to 2017 and writes a column for the New Statesman. Duncan Weldon, the writer and economist behind the value-added Substack newsletter and author of 200 Years of Muddling, and Will Dunn, the New Statesman's business editor. Thanks so much to all three of you for coming on, and I do encourage our listeners to read each of your excellent pieces on different aspects of this meltdown that's been unfolding this week on the New Statesman website and in this week's issue as well. There's a lot going on, so I'll just rattle through the main things. The pound tumbled to a record low against the dollar. The International Monetary Fund has openly criticised the UK government's tax plans. The Bank of England is stepping in to buy government bonds, an intervention on Wednesday without which there reportedly would have been mass insolvencies of pension funds by that very afternoon. And we're speaking just after Liz Truss has done a bit of a gruelling local radio round, saying basically that she won't change course or reverse the tax cuts. So first of all, Duncan, sorry for the basic question, but what exactly about the new government's plan are the markets so spooked by? Most of those tax cuts were pre-briefed and they were being touted around the country during Liz Truss's leadership campaign, after all. Step back to the fundamentals of the economy at the moment. We have inflation running at around double digits. It's expected to stay high. The Bank of England already, before anything this government did, had been raising interest rates this year from 0.1% last December up to 2.25% now. The Bank of England's doing that because it thinks to bring inflation down, demand needs to be taken out of the economy, things need to be slowed down. So that was the backdrop. And then the government sort of pressed on the accelerator with these big tax cuts last Friday. Now, you can say the markets, there was nothing unexpected there. This trust had been talking about this all summer, but I think it's the tax cuts were bigger than expected. The markets were expecting about £30 billion a year of tax cuts. That would be the cancellation of the rise in corporation tax, the reversal of the recent rise in national insurance contributions. But we didn't get £30 billion of tax cuts. We got £45 billion of permanent tax cut, a much bigger package, unexpected moves in income tax on the top rate, stamp duty. And it's not just, though, the actual size of the tax cuts. It's a perception of how the government is going about this. Sacking Tom Scholar, the permanent secretary of the Treasury, not having an office for budget responsibility forecast, the briefing over the weekend that we've just got started on the tax cuts, this sort of sense that the government no longer cares at all about the deficit numbers 
that this is just a dash for growth. It's, for want of a better phrase, the vibes of this government are things the markets don't like. David, you've written about the sort of difficult balance you usually have to strike when you're putting a budget together, which you've been party to yourself. So what do you think went wrong with this one? Is it that they don't care or are they just giving the impression that they don't care? I think there's an extraordinary amount of self-confidence and a sort of set of beliefs and a dismissal of any advice, any word of caution and that they could just plough on. So the point I was trying to bring out in my article was that normally when you're doing a fiscal event, you're trying to balance different audiences and different policy objectives, and that you end up with something which involves trade-offs and compromises and completely satisfy any one person or any one audience or any one objective, because life isn't like that. And yet what Liz and Quasi appeared to do for last Friday is just say, never mind about the bond markets. We, we, we think all those risks are overblown. Never mind about the politics. As long as we deliver growth, it'll all be fine. We'll just crack on and do what we want to do. And you know, personally, I think it was incredibly risky and self-indulgent. But as Duncan says, it sort of conveyed these sort of vibes of we're just going to do our thing. And also the market just doesn't believe them. It doesn't believe that it's going to deliver magical levels of growth. And the problem is, I think the UK and this government was already on fairly, I don't know, difficult footing because there's been too much delusional thinking for sort of some time. If we just do this, we'll be fine. These trade deals are going to be marvellous. Leaving the European Union is not going to have any downsides. No, the queues at Dover are nothing to do with the <laughs> with Brexit, <laughs> which both candidates signed up to. Yeah, that's just, it's just not true. And saying things that aren't true and economically nonsensical does test the patience of the markets. And I think Friday, the straw broke the camel's back. And you've actually tweeted that some of the same people who are dismissing the risks of all this were the same who were dismissing the risks of a no-deal Brexit. Oh, completely. It's the same people and the same arguments and the sort of, oh, it's just the global elite who are trying to stop us doing what we should do and be competitive and follow the policies we want. And if we just do that, everything will be marvellous. It's exactly the same people with exactly the same arguments. They are not risk-averse. They are prepared to gamble. And do you want them to be in charge of your economy? Well, the markets say we're going to have to price that risk in. Okay, and the, the free market think tank world is coming in for a lot of criticism as well. How influential do you think they are in this? And can you tell me a bit about your reflections on their influence while you were in cabinet? Yeah, I think they are influential. I don't buy the whole thing that there's something deeply sinister about 55 Tufton Streets. They're think tanks. They're, they, And this is a wider point. I think the think tanks, I think Liz, I think Quasi, they are sincere in their beliefs. This is not motivated by something sinister. They believe that you can, if you deregulate, if you have competitive taxes, especially for the internationally mobile individuals and investment, then you will have a more productive economy. And those think tanks make those arguments. They, if you're a minister, if you're an MP, you will engage with them. You'll hear those arguments. They produce papers. I think that's legitimate. I just think that when you're actually in power, you have more, you've got more responsibility, you have to be a bit more risk averse, you can't be that ideological, you have to test 
the arguments against the evidence and you also have to take into account the context and now is absolutely the worst time to be cutting the top rate of income tax when you know millions of households are going to face the toughest winter in living memory. And Will, you've written about the Bank of England's intervention. Can you first of all explain it to us? What are they doing? And then also explain what the implications could be, because you said there might be a perception that it's no longer making decisions independent of government because it's responding to government policy. Yeah, so the Bank of England has committed to buy £65 billion of government bonds, about £5 billion a day for 13 days. And it said that it was going to do that because it had identified a material risk to financial stability in the UK. And that material risk was was pension funds. Pension funds own a lot of assets. I guess you you could imagine a pension fund as being like a, a really big pile of things that thousands of people have all bought together. And in order to stabilise that big pile of things and keep it at the same height, while there are lots of different sort of competing things that, that people need to take money out, they need to keep it growing the same size so that the, the size of the assets is equal to the liabilities. They use lots of different financial products. And many of those are leveraged. So they're paid for using debt. And so they, they will borrow some money from another financial institution to, to use this product to, to stabilise the size of their fund to hedge against risk in the market. And what happened when bond prices fell was that some of these providers of these instruments then said, right, OK, market conditions have changed. So you need to increase the amount of money you've got to pay for that debt in that instrument. And that's called a margin call. And some of these margin calls were very big. Some of them were about the sort of order of £100 million. And they were to a lot of pension funds at once. So the funds needed to sell things that they had in order to 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 pay those margin calls and in a lot of cases that was more government bonds which were already the prices were already depressed by the fact that a the government had committed to spend a huge and effectively uncapped amount of money on everyone's energy bills by underwriting a price cap on the wholesale price of energy and and also they had been more severely depressed by the mini budget so when pension funds started to, to also sell it looked as if a spiral could develop in which the the value of the assets and the pension funds would just keep going down because everyone had wanted to get rid of them, no one wanted to buy them, and that would have been a really big problem for pension funds. There's a trillion pounds worth of, of pensions in the UK, and obviously they're extremely important to everyone for their retirement. And so the bank had to intervene for that. But it's, it's important to say that the bank is intervening to protect the pension funds and to stabilise markets, not to stabilise the cost of government debt, which would be right. a quite different thing. The problem is that the market might perceive that as the the bank being led by the government, being forced into this position by the government to to intervene in the market, which is really not what the bank is supposed to do. That's a, a situation that is called fiscal dominance, and it's the fiscal policy, the government, the way the government spends, and monetary policy, the way the bank works, are supposed to be separate. And if a fiscal policy is leading monetary policy, then markets can also see that as a sign that actually they, they, they wouldn't actually have that much confidence in the country. And that could have a further effect on their willingness to, to buy our debt. Right. OK. Thank you so much for explaining that. It's really helpful for our listeners. And Duncan, what does that mean for inflation and also for the government's aim, which is for growth? Yes. Yeah, so to put in context, the bank moves we saw this week the interest rate on a five-year government bond, a gilt, a five-year gilt, rose by about one and a half percentage points in the time 
since the budget. Now, to your listeners, one and a half percentage points might not sound like very much, but this is supposed to be really stable long-term investments. It's really, with offence to any guilt traders listening, a sort of quite sleepy, slow-moving place, the guilt market normally. A 1.5 percentage point change in the yield is usually something that would take about a year to play out rather than a week. So we were getting into a very strange place in the markets. And the Bank of England intervened, not for reasons of monetary policy, but for reasons of financial stability. We were in a position when the price of core UK assets, government debt, the bedrock of the entire financial system, was swinging wildly. It wasn't moving for sort of fundamental economic reasons. It was moving because of technical factors in the markets, people getting large demands for immediate payment because they're what we'd say that margin calls. We were getting towards a fire sale and a really big breakdown. We were dangerously close to a breakdown in a core UK asset market. The Bank of England has stepped in for just two weeks to try and stabilize that, not to support prices in the long run, but to prevent a fire sale in assets. And to be honest, that's the reason why we have central banks. That's a core function to step in and do that. The extraordinary thing about it is the bank has to intervene in markets in a crisis. It did it March 2020. It did immediately after the Brexit vote. It did multiple times in 2008, 2009. But this is the first time I can remember that the bank has had to intervene in a core UK market to mop up damage done by the Treasury the week before. Just extraordinary. What this means for inflation, well, the bank is now being very clear. It's signaling, yes, we are stepping into this market for the next two weeks, but we are still going to be tightening policy. We're expecting what I think the non-technical language you could call a monster rise in interest rates in November. It's going to have to be very big. It's going to have to be, it was going to have to be big anywhere when you look at what other central banks are doing. It's going to have to be bigger to take account of the budget we got last week. And it's probably going to have to be a step bigger now to sort of reassure markets after the bank did this intervention that they're still seriously focused on inflation. Financial markets expect the Bank of England's base rate to get to something like 6% next summer. Now, I actually don't think they will go quite that far. I think they will go far, but not that far. But we should just be utterly clear that 6% interest rates is a level of interest rates which will absolutely crater household incomes, cause serious problems in the housing market, and probably tip us into a reasonably deep recession. That's not a good outlook. It's not reassuring. No. And we'll move on to the political implications in the second half of the podcast. But I just have one more question for you, Duncan, on this. I've just come back from Labour conference and I've been reminiscing about Labour conferences past. And I remember Jeremy Corbyn and John McDonnell talking openly in 2017 about them wargaming for a run on the pound if they did come into government. And I just wondered whether you could explain for us briefly the difference between trussonomics and Corbynomics, because a lot of people on the left have been saying for a long time we shouldn't be obsessed with balancing the books. We shouldn't be seeing the country as if it's a household budget. Now, the people who were arguing for that in David's government days appear to be vindicated. I mean, it's strange. I get on back when in the coalition, when David was a treasury minister before he was a cabinet minister, at that point, the government he was a member of was pursuing a policy of trying to close the deficit. Now, I actually think they went too far doing it, but David could debate this, but I think we were in a different economic position. The difference now is we are now in a position that inflation is high and rising and interest rates are heading up. I think that's, that changes your view 
on how you should be setting fiscal policy, what your view of the deficit should be. So I think there's a timing difference. There's obviously a composition of that deficit difference that Jeremy Corbyn, John McDonald wanted more spending rather than tax cuts. But in the short term, in the short term, they do look similar in terms of the, uh, what they mean just for the raw borrowing numbers. When we talk about a run on the pound, we get a lot of attention on the pound bouncing around and the pound losing value matters. You know, it adds to imported inflation. It makes us worse off as a country. It matters. But I really think the important financial market to be looking at in the days and weeks ahead is what's happened with interest rates. And higher interest rates stabilize the value of the pound. They make putting your money into the pound if you're a foreign investor more attractive. They come at a cost. They come at the cost of higher interest rates, higher mortgage bills, higher borrowing costs for firms. It's no good saying the Bank of England puts interest rates to 6%. Well done, we've stabilised the pound, but firms can't invest and households are seeing their income whacked. Okay, thanks. Everyone stick with me because we'll talk about the political implications of all of this on the second half. Hi, it's Anoush here. This is just a reminder that as a podcast listener, you have the option of subscribing to The New Statesman with a very special offer. You can subscribe for just a pound a week. That's 12 weeks for £12 if you go to newstatesman.com forward slash podcast offer. We'll be right back. From The New Statesman comes a new podcast, Audio Long Reads. The best of our reported features and essays read aloud. Featuring writing from our authors, including Edward Docks on the death of Boris the Clown. When did the booing start? He was never exactly sure. A year inside GB News with Stuart McGurk. One presenter told me that producers had taken to booking their own parents. May Robson on why women's football is the more beautiful game. Like most of the England squad, the Euro 2022 captain Leah Williamson can't afford not to have a plan B. Ease into the weekend with our audio long reads published every Saturday morning. Just search Audio Long Reads from the New Statesman wherever you get your podcasts. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. David, what do you make of the government's response so far? There's been all sorts of excuses wheeled out that it's Putin's war impacting every major economy. The same thing is happening in Japan. Even some media and political outriders of this government suggesting the markets were responding to the prospect of a Labour government. What have you made of all of these excuses? Not helpful. Not helpful for the government's cause, in fact, because you know, the fundamental problem here, as we've discussed, is a lack of credibility in the government's approach. The markets have lost confidence. And how do you restore that confidence? That's got to be the economic 
priority of the government. And you don't do that by coming up with a load of explanations that are, frankly, delusional on occasions. It is the case there are some global issues, etc., etc., but it is the UK where the issue has come to the head. It's the UK that's seen its currency decline against everybody else. It's the UK where the central bank has had to intervene in the way that it has. And so I think if I was in the advising and the treasury, I'd be saying, come on, the focus has got to be overwhelmingly about the bond markets. That's the audience that really matters. They understand this stuff. They know why they've acted. You can't kid them. You just say, oh, in fact, you, you were worried about Keir Starmer. Now, that isn't what was going on. Face up to it. Be Show some honesty. Maybe not complete honesty, but at least some honesty. And don't try and peddle explanations that it might get you through a radio interview if you're lucky, but probably won't. But it but won't convince the markets. You get real with them because, as I say, this sort of delusional thinking is lies behind, I think, the really extraordinary reaction we've seen. And we are hearing a few hints at how they're going to try and navigate this. Chris Philp, Chief Secretary of the Treasury, has written to departments asking them to make cuts. And he's also refused to confirm that uprate in benefits in line with inflation that's supposed to come in April. How do you feel about that as a response? And how much more is there left to cut? You were Working Pension Secretary and you saw how difficult it was for people on benefits already. Yeah, it's, it's going to be immensely difficult. First of all, spending probably will have to play a role because you have to regain market confidence and you, know, you can do that with taxes you can do that with spending, you can do that with interest rates, you probably end up doing a combination of all three. So you can't rule that out. But this is really difficult because for a start, the last spending review was more generous to departments than had been the case before, but it was set out in cash terms. And now we've got inflation much, much higher than was anticipated at that time. So that spending review that looked more generous isn't. It is different from back in 2010, where government departments had seen years of really very substantial real terms increases. This has been a period where spending constraint has been very tight. So there's not the fat there in, in government spending. And then when we come to benefits... Look, this is a time when living standards are falling sharply, particularly at the bottom end where expenditure on food and energy takes up a bigger proportion of expenditure than it does for those who are better off. And to cut benefits at this time, whilst also apparently cutting the taxes on the highest earning, you really don't have to be someone on the hard left to think that is a pretty ghastly combination. Yeah. So I just and I just don't think Conservative MPs would wear that. And again, it comes back to credibility. You can come up with all big big plans on spending, they're gonna take the strain, but if the markets think you're not gonna be able to deliver deliver that, it doesn't help you either. So trying to do this entirely on spending, I think, is doomed to fail. Okay. And you mentioned a bit about what people are going through in this tight period with prices rising. Will, can you tell us a bit about the day-to-day impact of all of this turmoil that we've been talking about on people? Sure. Yeah. And I think it's really important to the political context as well, because one of the, the very serious impacts will be felt by the middle class and by the homeowners that are a slightly larger proportion of the Conservative voters. And that, as Duncan said, an increase in interest rates up to something like 6% would be would trigger a sharp recession. And it would mean that 
somebody with about the medium house price on about the medium loan to value ratio would see their mortgage payments increase by about £500 a month. The, the way we were to, uh, talking about the price cap going up above £3,000 and that being seen as an emergency, you're talking about people's mortgage payments, which are already high, house prices being so high, going up by £6,000 a year. So that's why I, yeah, I, I agree with Duncan and I think Pantheon Macroeconomics is also as well have said in their forecast that it's probably more like 4% that, that bank rate will go up to. But mortgage rate will go up because the rate at which mortgage providers borrow is already up due to the movements in financial markets. Yeah, that, that will be very serious for people and it'll be particularly serious for people who are on fixed rate mortgages. One of the big underlying problems with the UK economy at the moment, I think, is that a lot of people bought houses in 2020 because stamp duty was cut, part of the you know economic stimulus package, but it led a lot of people to take on a lot of cheap debt, which is now going to get a lot more expensive. And a lot of, especially first-time buyers, did that in the cheapest possible way, which was mm. with the shortest possible fixed term. So a lot of people bought houses in 2020 on a two-year fixed-rate mortgage, and I think about 8% of fixed-rate mortgages per quarter are going to come to the end of their fix over the next year. So you're talking about about a million households a month or more coming to the end of their fixed rate mortgage per year and having to take on a much more expensive deal if they can get one. Something like a thousand uh, mortgage products have been withdrawn from the market this week already. So yeah, you're looking at a fast and very steep change in the cost of living for the middle classes in the UK. Right. And what does that mean for the Conservatives electorally, David? pretty disastrous, to be blunt. I think for a lot of people, the last few days have reminded us, those of us old, old enough to remember, of September 1992, Black Wednesday, and so on. And that was politically disastrous for the Conservative Party. But what followed was actually lower interest rates and an economy doing pretty well. If you have a kind of moment of loss of economic control, like Black Wednesday, then combined with a squeeze on living standards with interest rates going up. And everyone is going to blame the government for interest rates going up, for all of it. Unfairly, because interest rates were going to go up a bit, but they're now going to be blamed for every single extra penny of mortgage interest that everyone is going to pay. It's it's catastrophic. And as Will says, yeah, that, that is aimed at exactly the people that the Conservative Party relies on for their very mortgage holders. It does badly with those who pay rent. It does well with those who pay mortgages. And those people are going to be badly hit and it's pretty clear who they're going to blame. And Will, you had a question for David as well, I think, didn't you on this? Yeah. So on the on the subject of this kind of fiscal dominance and whether or not that has materialised and when it if it did materialise, when it did, I wonder if there's an argument to be made that during the austerity period, had the cuts to public spending not been so severe, had fiscal policy not been so tight, there would have been room for a tighter monetary policy. There would have been room for interest rates to rise then in the wake of the financial crisis, rather than remaining low for a decade and inflating the asset bubble, inflating house prices and creating this systemic instability to which the UK is now particularly exposed. Yeah, I understand the argument. And look, the intention of going back to the fiscal policies of those years, it was to stay ahead of the 
curve because, okay, the conditions were different then than they are now, but you still had in the run-up to the 2010 general election, you had the head of PIMCO saying the British economy was sleeping on a bed of nitroglycerin. There were still risks. There were other countries, Greece obviously having a lot of problems, and we just wanted to stay well away from that. We didn't want there to be people talking about could the UK face these difficulties, and that was the driver. Now, having had a, a tighter fiscal policy, and we wanted to put the public finances on a sustainable footing, yes, that did leave space for a looser monetary policy. That, we felt, was the best outcome at the time, because if we wanted sustainable public finances, we had to be we had to be tight, and that allowed scope for low interest rates, and normally low interest rates are quite good in terms of helping getting the economy moving. And I think, yes, a looser fiscal policy would have meant higher interest rates, but whether that would have helped economic growth at the time, I would seriously question. But, you know, what uh, what I don't think the policies of that time can be blamed for is the way that we have moved from low interest rates to very high interest rates by, by over the course of a few days, um, by just forgetting about fiscal discipline altogether. That wasn't part of the long-term economic plan. And Duncan, I mean, is there any way that sort of the Bank of England's intervention works and things settle down and Liz Truss and Kwasi Kwarteng get away with it, in, <laughs> to put it in so many words? <laughs> no. Uh, it is the really short answer. If you want slightly longer one, it's really important to say that the Bank of England is not trying to fix the yield that the interest rate on government debt low. It's stepping in for two weeks to prevent a fire sale in prices. The bank is still going to be tightening policy aggressively in the months ahead. And in terms of financial markets, we shouldn't over-concentrate on what happens on one day or even a couple of days. This is a thing that plays out over weeks and months with occasional moments of acute pressure. The government currently seems to think they're going to get away with waiting until the end of November to set out a full sort of fiscal plan on their spending and tax side over the next few years, they might get there. I think there's a high chance that market pressure becomes too acute and they have to bring that forward. And ridiculous as it sounds to say it is very seriously, the next sort of obvious pressure points will be Quarteng and Truss's speeches at Conservative Party conference next week, which will be watched very very closely by markets. And my one bit of advice to them today would be, please, please, please ensure that someone with some experience of dealing with financial markets closely goes over that draft. Because the last thing you want to do is stand up at your conference, talk up how much you're going to cut taxes, sit down and see that gilt yields have risen again, sterling's taken another dive. And there is a real risk that could happen if this isn't handled carefully. So just to follow up on that, I saw Duncan tweeting that point, and I thought a very good point indeed. It reminds me of the 2016 party conference. Dif different circumstances, not nothing as febrile as now, but Theresa May's speech there. And there were some references to QE in it and the role of the Bank of England, and nobody in the Treasury had seen the speech. And it landed incredibly badly. And I remember having conversations afterwards with people in number 10 saying, actually, Next time, we will make sure that somebody looks at this. It's an obvious, it's an obvious thing that Duncan points out, but it does it has got missed in the past. Yeah. Of and it's so critical that nobody says anything that goes off script next week because you could just start the whole thing over again.
And more in general, what do you think that Liz Truss and Kwasi Kwarteng should say at party conference and should they be U-turning on some of the tax cuts that they've introduced? I, I think they should in terms of suspending it at least and say we are going to come back, I agree with Duncan again, I think 23rd November seems a long time away, but we're going to come back and we're going to do a proper fiscal event and we're going to have the OBR score it and put a forecast in and we're going to have some fiscal rules and whatever we do we're going to make sure that we hit those fiscal rules i think that would provide some reassurance but god that's politically they're going to have to swallow some nasty medicine because that's what will be reassuring to the markets and just lastly you've written for us that this iteration of the conservative party is a danger to itself and to the country yeah, I, and I, I, yeah, I was very cross when I wrote that, and I got <laughs> quite punchy by my standards. But yeah, it was utterly reckless what happened last week, and the more I thought about it, the more outraged I was. Yeah, it's just reckless, and that's not what a Conservative Party should be doing, or anyone else, for that matter. Thank you so much for joining us, and we will be monitoring the fallout of this on many episodes to come, I'm sure. You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast with me, Anoush Shekelian, my colleague Will Dunn, and our guests David Gork and Duncan Weldon. Thanks so much for listening, and don't forget to subscribe and leave us a nice review. Our music is Devil with the Devil, licensed under Creative Commons, and we're produced by Adrian Bradley.